Good morning, everybody. We are going to be in two different passages of Scripture this morning. The first one is going to be Genesis chapter 3, 14 through 20, and then I'll jump on over to Joel chapter 2, uh, verses 25 through 32. So get your running shoes on. You ready? Okay, cool. Some people are awake. It's great. <laughs> All right, Genesis chapter 3, 14 through 20. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the, wom- the mother of all the living. And jumping over to Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 25 through 32. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other Never again will my people be shamed. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all the people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. About that. So, no basket, but I have a message. I have a message, sort of, because pastor told me the sermon topic, and I said, uh, oh, that's an easy one. Piece of cake. I mean, you know? And uh, she said, don't even try. And I told her what the method was, right? No, it's pretty simple. Look at the men in this congregation, right? It's, it's simple. And she said, no. So then I, I couldn't decide. I could not think, figure out what to talk about today. She was like, talk about next week's stuff if you want. 
talk about other things if you'd like. Well, you know, but I couldn't figure anything out. Um, and this morning, it, it came to me what, what to talk about. And I don't think it'll be what the pastor is going to talk about today. Uh, it'll be a slightly different perspective. But the way I see it, snakes are still disliked, and they still crawl on their bellies. And birth pains are still severe. And men still have to go to work every day. And um, that's just the way it is. And so the curses are still sitting there. Um, however, my first thought was, well, what, what about Revelation? Revelation 21, verse 4, talks about when we go to heaven, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So that kind of said to me, hey, there it is, right there. That's when the old order is going to pass away. But then I thought, who wants to wait until we get to heaven? It's got to be better than that. And that led me to Romans 5. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, say... Not only so we also, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. We, we rejoice in our sufferings. All right. We probably don't do that nearly as much as we should. Um, we probably don't rejoice as much as we should. But when you consider, hi Ben, when you consider endurance, perseverance, character, and hope, and those are all things that we strive for on a daily basis. So here, how do we get those? Well, according to this book, we get them through our sufferings. And that gives us something to rejoice for. But the part that really made me rejoice as I read it was the last part that says, hope does not disappoint. God's love has been poured out into our hearts. When I think about that, God's love being poured into our hearts, I'll take the sufferings every day. feeling really grateful for God's grace and the choir sang what a friend we have in Jesus and I was listening to my music in the car on the way here and it was Aretha Franklin's version of what a friend we have in Jesus which is amazing so instead of me saying words as I pray for this sermon let's um, sit silently before I get started and um, just contemplate how amazing God's grace is and what a friend we do have in Jesus. Amen. 
Okay, so if for some reason you don't have a bulletin or you're with us online and you don't know what the title of today's sermon is, it is, Are Women Still Being Punished for Eve's Sin? This is probably <laughs> one of the more overwhelming topics I've tackled here, although we don't really shy away from difficult subjects here usually, do we? Um, so I feel like I need to do a little bit of a preamble before we actually get into the topic. And because somebody this week, one of you, said to me that you thought that I had expressed that I don't really like preaching very much and that this is a, I have a hard time listening to God when I'm preparing for the sermon. I am really sorry if that's the impression that I give. I actually really love preaching, partly because preparing the sermon is where I really encounter God a lot during my week. God always shows me stuff. I think I'm going into a passage, and I think I know what I'm going to say, and then I'll dig in there, and all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, that is something better and more than I ever thought. So the hard part, sometimes I do say, this is a really hard sermon to write. This one was pretty hard to write. Um, that doesn't mean I don't like it. It just means it's hard. <laughs> um, it's a challenge. The trickiest part for me is, I think you know this, I tend to have giant ideas. And so when God shows me something in scripture, I get really excited about it and I want to communicate it, but I have a hard time translating what I think I'm receiving from God into words, any words, especially words that make sense to people outside my own head. So <laughs> I am going to uh, just put that out there as a little bit of context. Also, um, I am aware that sometimes we feel like we don't remember the sermons. I, a lot of times when I'm preaching, I'll say, hey, remember when we talked about this in 2019? I don't actually expect you to remember that. Listen, nobody in any church remembers the sermons from the week before except the person that wrote them and preached them. <laughs> you guys actually do pretty good for, uh, mo compared to most churches, I think. Um, because when I ask a question, almost always one of you has some kind of response that shows that you were listening the other weeks. So uh, when I do that and you don't remember, don't feel bad. Um, but I do want to say this, because I think when t with topics like this, sometimes it can get, this can get lost. As I, so I'm in, the, in my fourth year pastoring, you guys, and as I have been going along, I've realized that at least the message that I think God has given me to preach overall is what Jesus taught us to pray. God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in the heavens. So if I'm talking about something and you are like, what in the world is she saying? Go back to the passage that we're looking at for the day and say, where could, where do I see God's kingdom coming and God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven in this passage, or where is it not, and where could it be? Because I really believe that if we're following Jesus and we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, God is transforming us to be more and more like Jesus so that before he even comes back, we should be creating pockets in the world around us of God's kingdom. 
That is the point. And that's even the point when we talk about are women still being punished for Eve's sin. This question is a little bit loaded. It's kind of like the question, are you still beating your wife? You don't, you, you know that joke, right? It's kind of a horrible joke. You, okay, if someone said to someone, are you still beating your wife? Is there a good answer? No. no. <laughs> right. So I feel like this question, are women still being punished for Eve's sin, is kind of like that. In fact, it's almost like we could say, is God still beating wives, women? Is God a misogynist? No. So we are going to tackle this question by digging into the, there are all these layers in this question. Punishment and Eve's sin and there's this unspoken idea of God because this story comes from the Bible. So we're going to look at the specifics of the punishment. We're going to look at what God is like, who God is, and what God intended for women. Men, don't tune this out because what affects women ultimately affects you. So um, this is going to be important. And I want to tell you going into this, I'm not coming at this from Jen's a female pastor and she's a feminist and she just wants to advocate for women. I do want to advocate for women and I kind of am a feminist at this point, but I didn't used to be. I didn't used to be, believe that women could be pastors. God showed me this from scripture. And I, my agenda is not to... It's not really women as the first point. My agenda is the well-being of women because I believe that that is one way that God's kingdom can come and God's will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the church overall needs to be thinking in these terms and kind of overall needs to clean up its act a little bit. So we're going to look at the Bible as a whole. There aren't a whole lot of passages that you can proof text from to talk about this topic, but the Bible as a whole gives us a framework for how we can look at this. Um, we're also going to look a little bit at culture and historical context and s some of the stuff that um, is expressed in other parts of the Bible historically, and we're going to also kind of touch on what kind of passage we're looking at. So, the short answer to this question, are women still being punished for Eve's sin, is yes, but not by God. And it is time for Christians especially to help stop it. I am going to take your point, Ron, because that is an important point. I hope I remember. <laughs> um, but it is time for us to help everybody else stop punishing women for Eve's sin. So, where all this comes from, really at the beginning, is Genesis 1 through 3, which is the beginning. Um, in Genesis 1, we read part of it in our responsive reading, and the point of Genesis 1, people get really hung up on that passage, and they want to argue about whether God created the world in seven 24-hour days, or whether he created the world in uh, over billions and billions of years, that is not the point of that passage. The point of that passage is it was written in a really ancient time period where they didn't have 
the type of science that we had. They had a different kind, and nobody was an atheist back then. So nobody, they're not trying to argue the existence of God or how God created the world. They're trying to argue that God is God. And all of these other things that God created, the sun and the moon and the stars and the water and the sky and the land and the animals and the birds and the fish and all of those things are not God. Other people in other nations were worshiping those things as God, and they're not God, and that's the point of Genesis 1. All those things are good, but they're all created. None of them are God. God is God. So that's the point. The most, the other, another point is, of all the created things in the world, the most godlike thing in that creation, still not God, but godlike, is humans. Humans were designed to represent God to creation and, because they're created, to represent creation to God. We talked about this a lot in the temple series at the beginning of the year, but don't worry, I don't expect you to remember that. It's great if you do, though. Bonus. So, look at your bulletin and the responsive reading and see if you can find, forget for a second, I don't advise this, but forget everything else that you know or think you know about the rest of the Bible and just look at the responsive reading. Is there anything in there that shows that either male or female is superior to the other one? No. There isn't. It says, God created, the translation we read today said mankind, just because that's the word that they use, but humans. God created humans in God's image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Both of them are in the image of God. They are not, there is no status difference in that passage, and there isn't in chapter 2 either, which gives us a different type of account of the creation. The first, Genesis 1 is kind of a poem, and Genesis 2 is more of a story, and it tells, it actually orders the way that the things were created in a different order, um, because, again, the point is not the order, the point is not the science, the point is what it's saying about God and what it's saying about humans, and what Genesis 2 says about Eve, or about the woman in particular, is that she was created to be, well, our translations usually say a helper. Let me say, who thinks helper is a really great term? Ladies, you all want to be helpers? Yes. Maybe. Well, definitely people were thinking differently, but here's the thing. In the well, 1600s, ooh, I'm going to get this wrong. God does like servants. That's really, that is actually really important. Okay, forget it. I'm not going to go into the whole King James politics, but um, the term, when God says, I'm going to make a, we say, helper for the man, what he's saying is, this is a Hebrew term, ezer kenegdo. So ezer kenegdo means 
Ezer is a Hebrew word that means power or strength. And the only time that word is ever, ever, ever used anywhere else in the Bible except Genesis 2 is to describe God. So this isn't like kind of strong or just a helper. It is somebody powerful, uh, like a warrior, a valiant warrior. And Kenegdo, this is kind of weird, actually apparently means against him. So God says, literally, I'm going to make a power or a strength against him. And this medieval, that doesn't make sense to me either, don't worry. Um, but this medieval Jewish commentator named Rashi, who's pretty famous, said when he commented on this, he says, if he, the man, is worthy, she, the woman, will be a help, an ezer. If he is not worthy, she will be against him, Kenegdo. So the woman is not supposed to be subordinate, but is supposed to be equal. And you know how you say you, you balance each other out, or you, in the Psalms, God t or David or somebody writes about iron sharpening iron. It's this kind of idea. You're helping um, by supporting what's good and by challenging what isn't so good. And when Adam, when the man sees the woman and says, this one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this doesn't mean she's like some other thing. He's saying, no, she's equal to me. This, she's like me. They're equals. So a website, there wasn't an author listed on this article. It was a good article, though. Uh, Godswordtowomen.org, um, which most of the article quoted male scholars on this, in case you're concerned about this. They say, the woman was never meant to be an assistant to the man, as in lower. What God intended was to make a power or strength for the man who would in every way correspond to him or be his equal. This is really, really, really important for us to understand. Before the fall, the man and the women, woman were both equally created in God's image, and they were equal to each other because God wanted to express his image through each of them equally but in different ways. And we're going to get to that. So then Genesis 3 happens, which... Kathleen read part of, it, part of to us, but she didn't read the first part. What happens in Genesis 3? <sighs> run, run. <laughs> I love them. This should have been, been the message in a basket, maybe. Um, yeah, I'm not even going to repeat that. Okay, <laughs> uh, Genesis chapter 3 is usually known as the fall chapter and kind of the explanation for why everything in the world is kind of messed up ever since. Um, there was a tree in the middle of this garden that God had put the man and the woman in and there was some fruit on it that looked delicious and God had said don't eat from that tree and they weren't eating from that tree, and the man and the woman had a good relationship with each other and with God, and then all of a sudden this serpent shows up and tricks 
the woman into eating this fruit. I say tricked because think about this. They're in a perfect world. There's never been a lie. No one has ever had any reason to question anything that anybody's ever said. And so this serpent shows up and says, did God really say? And she says, he said we can eat all the fruit that's not from that tree, and he says, or we'll die. He says, you won't die. So he contradicts God. This woman has, and the man either, they've never encountered any kind of communication like this. So she is deceived. The man, on the other hand, he rebels because he knew and he sees her do it and he could say, no, no, let's not do that. Uh, But he goes along with it. Anyway, both of them make a poor choice for different reasons. So what is the threat? I actually just said it. If, If you eat from this tree, what will happen? Death, right. Did they die right away? No. Well... Okay, not physically. They didn't physically die. Um, and a lot of times in churches and Sunday school and stuff, we'll say they didn't, they didn't physically die, they didn't die right away, but they were going to die, and they died spiritually in that moment. Yes. And here's the other thing. Human beings were designed to represent God to all of creation in all of themselves. And when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's like, your whole self. So we can assume that when they chose to believe a lie and act on that and try to short-circuit the process of gaining knowledge, I believe God would have given them the knowledge of good and evil if they had been patient and gone along with God, but they didn't. They wanted to be God themselves. And so that invited death in some way, into all of who they were, but also into creation. Death, which is linked in the Hebrew mind with chaos, those things are the opposite of what God intended. We were created, and we talk about this from time to time, we were created to bring God's loving order, or life, which is of God, out of chaos, or death, which is not of God. If we try to be godlike without God, we will participate in death. We can't do it ourselves because life comes from God. So we will be part of the chaos, and we invite some of that death, some of that chaos, into ourselves. So in the passage in Genesis 3, look it up if you can quickly, um, who or what is cursed? The serpent. And one other thing. A little further down. The ground is. Okay, thank you. The serpent is cursed, and the ground is cursed. God does not use the word curse for either the man or the woman. Creation is the realm that humans were supposed to represent God to, and so the curse on creation affects the humans because we were created in God's image to represent him to the rest of creation and to represent creation to God. So, all of a sudden, 
By making this choice, the man and the woman have allowed chaos into the creation, and they still have the job of bringing God's loving order to creation, but now they have some chaos inside them, and they've invited it in. Instead of keeping it out, they've invited chaos in. So, it's harder to bring order to chaos and death when we have invited it in. But here's the thing. Consequences are not the same thing as curses. We know this, right? We face consequences to things all the time. And it doesn't mean that we're cursed. It's just consequences. So the consequences that Adam and Eve face continue to trickle down into today. Because once the door was open to chaos, it just came in. There's still chaos here. There's still death here. So what are the separate consequences to the man and the woman? Labor pains for women. Harder work for men. Right, the desire for your husband and he will rule over you. So, essentially, women have something happening in their bodies that is painful, and even women that don't bear children still have issues with blood and that kind of thing. Blood represents both life and death in the Bible. So there's life and death in at least the potential for both things in the woman. And the, all of a sudden, this equal relationship between the woman and the man is broken. And now women somehow get subjugated and the man rules over her. But, let's be clear here, that's not what God intended. And God isn't saying, okay, Adam, you take charge now, because she clearly couldn't handle it. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. This is the consequence. Chaos is in the relationship, too. Death is in the relationship. Why were Eve's consequences so much more personal than Adam's? Adam has to work hard. The woman's got life and death in her body and, and relationship problems. Any ideas? I think a lot of times that's what people think, because she ate the fruit first. I don't think that's why. It could be, but I don't think so. I think it is because woman, as a generality, represents God to creation and creation to God more directly and personally in herself than the man does in general. So, note, I'm not making any statements about gender roles or even gender traits. I think that if we were a little bit more forgiving on the traits that each gender could express, we might have a little bit less of identity crisis going on in our world, not, it wouldn't be gone, but it, we would probably have less of it. Um, I'm not talking about roles or traits, I'm talking about design. Wh the man's life-giving imaging of God is something that happens outside of himself, even if it begins within himself, um, even if it has to do with making a baby, it happens outside. 
of himself. Gardening, overseeing the animals, begetting children, all of this is important. It is life-giving. It is an honor to the man. It is part of God's image. But the woman's life-giving and God-imaging happens in her own body. Even women who don't marry or don't or can't bear children represent these aspects of creation and this aspect of God. And so if creation is cursed, it affects the man's work outside of himself. Death is mixed in with the life of creation, but, if, but it affects the woman's work within herself. No matter what she's doing out there, women can be gardeners, women can, I mean, here I am. But death is mixed in with life inside her. So there's blood, there's pain, there's the potential for death. Also, the elements of relationship. Usually, not all the time, but usually women are more invested in relational well-being than men. This is not, I, I'm saying not everybody, but very often that is the case. And that is another way that she distinctly images God. The punishment for Eve's being deceived and Adam's being rebellious was the same. They both got exiled from the garden. The garden was where there was no chaos and there was no death. They get exiled from it. That's the same punishment. The consequences of death are different. Women, and so the way that they have played out for women throughout history, there are multiple ways, but um, here are some. Abusive or neglectful relationships. Women having children they can't support. Women feeling like they have no option but to kill their children. Women dying in childbirth. And also more modern things like lower pay grades, more menial work, not being believed. Those are all things that have played out specifically, mostly for women in the contrast between women and men throughout history. Do men suffer abuse? Are some women abusers? Are some women terrible mothers? Um, is abortion wrong? We're not talking about that today. Um, we are just saying the way that the consequences of death and chaos in the world have played out has left women, generally speaking, in a really bad place. And this is not what God intended. God in didn't intend for death and chaos to be part of his creation. God didn't intend for the relationship between men and women to be one or th over the other, not either one over the other. He intended for us to be equal. God did not inflict the consequences. He didn't just dig into his bag of nasty tricks and pick out one that was meaner for the woman because he liked her less or she was an afterthought or she overstepped her bounds or she should have listened, she should have asked Adam's permission or because God always intended for the man to be in charge of her anyway. None of that. None of that is true. The consequences have played out the way God described because of the different ways that God placed his image in male and female. God was stating that when both male and female choose to do things without him, this is the way things play out. And we know that it is because it's still playing out. This isn't something God wants to do to us. It's not also not something he wants his people to do to each other. So, 
This is where Ron's point comes in. The Bible's very clear that if we follow Jesus, we can expect to suffer. The world is not healed. Um, there was part of this question, as it was asked to me, was if Jesus died to forgive us from our sins, why are women still being punished? Because right now, the world is not healed. The world is not made new. And so there is going to be suffering. But Jesus came not just to die on the cross and save us from our sins in the future so we can all go to heaven when we die. He did it so his people who are filled by his Holy Spirit, who are being transformed to be like him, in the world now can start to make a difference in these broken and diseased areas. In, we can start already to bring God's loving order and life into the chaos and death that is around us. So we've said over and over and over here that the gospel is reconciliation between us and God, us and each other, us and creation, us and ourselves. This male and female part is the us and each other piece. That also plays out in other areas like racism and that kind of thing, but this, the division between male and female happened at the beginning. There were only two people. There weren't other races. <laughs> but so this is a core example of chaos and death in the world that God's people need to work to fix. God didn't want work to be hard. God didn't want relationships to be abusive or neglectful. God didn't want life-giving to be painful. That's not the creation he made. So, why are we not doing things together to help this, to fix this? I, I do want to say, I feel like if Christians, Christians used to be at the forefront of caring about these types of social issues, um, racism and alcoholism, and in some cases even like votes for women, all of those things were led by Christians. And it's a long story, so I won't go into it, but things changed in this country, especially in the early 1900s, and now Christians, by and large, are in the back seat of taking care of these issues. And so the world says, oh, this is wrong. We'll fix it. But they don't have the Holy Spirit in them to show them how to fix it. We do. So let's, let's listen to the Holy Spirit and let's do something. I think the reason that women and children are still being routinely abused in churches, among church leadership and other people, and why churches counsel women to stay with their abusive or cheating husbands, even if their lives are in danger, or the reason that women work for churches for free or they get paid um, less of a living wage than men, I think the reason why women historically and even to this day typically are so poorly treated in the church is because the subjugation of women is the enemy's number one battle tactic against God and God's image bearers. If God created woman to be a valiant warrior partner with man so that together they can reflect different aspects of God's image 
fully to creation, then literally the best way to make that not happen is to pit the image bearers against each other. Right? That's a pretty good strategy. If the forces of chaos, which are represented by the serpent in the garden, exist to oppose God, doesn't it make sense they would go after the woman who represents both the life-giving power of God and the life-receiving power of creation in her own self? Go after that one. Why do you think the serpent asked the woman, didn't touch the man? Because the woman represents these two things really in herself. Doesn't it make sense that the forces of chaos who hate God and hate God's image bearers would do their best to convince human beings that one type of human is better than another type of human? So they can't support each other. If the forces can convince us of that, they can keep us working against each other and if we are working against each other, we're also fighting against God, God's image in each other, forever and ever and ever and ever. And we just keep doing it. God didn't inflict a punishment on Eve and her daughters. God was descri describing how her, a shortcut to knowledge without him would play out from generation to generation as long as humans continue to sin. Sisters and brothers, let me say it again. God is not punishing women for Eve's sin. But human beings still are. And the forces of chaos will continue to gang up on women as a generality because if they can keep down the warrior helper by abusing her, or exploiting her, or commodifying her, or misinterpreting her, or causing her to hate herself, because there are a whole lot of women who hate themselves. If the forces of chaos can do that, and if they can convince God's people that this is either God's will, or a secondary issue that just doesn't matter that much, the world will never, ever get a complete picture of the God who loves them in all the fullness of the ways that God loves them. Because male and female were created in the image of God to express it in different ways. And we shortchange ourselves when we leave one of those two ways out. So, Joel 2 is a prophecy in the Old Testament and He's, the passage that Kathleen read starts out talking about years the locusts have eaten. In the time of Joel, there was a plague of locusts that devastated the nation of Israel. And that prophecy, that actually, that um, the plague of locusts was a punishment. But it was also a sign that chaos and death are still in creation. It was a sign that the world is still broken. The subjugation of women was never God's best intention for women or men, and it's not good for either us or creation. And so I think we can read this passage from Joel in our day, because we're not currently, we have a drought. We're not having a plague of locusts right now. Um, we can read it as a comfort to men and women. There are 
years and years and years and years, centuries, millennia of years, that the locusts have eaten by shortchanging God's people by keeping women invisible or oppressed. But Joel prophesying says God is going to restore those years. And God is going, partly God is going to do that by pouring God's spirit over everybody, all flesh. Young and old, male and female, all of them will, fe- will speak the words of God, will express the life of God, and would image the ordering life and love of God. Joel's prophecy was fulfilled first on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts. Peter recognized it that day, and he preached a whole sermon on it, quoting from this passage in Joel. The spiritual locusts have eaten a whole lot of years, but God wants to restore those years, and until Jesus returns to claim his bride, he wants to restore them through his spirit working through his people. God intends for the church, which is described as Jesus' bride, to be a place where women are valued and affirmed and kept safe and empowered to be the valiant warriors God created us to be. Not for the sake of feminism as the world practices feminism, not to subjugate men, not to flip the tables, not to do any of that, but to honor both aspects of God's image in the world so together we can flourish and creation can flourish too. Thank you for allowing a woman to be your pastor. And, preach that. (laughs) Women may still be being punished for Eve's sin, but not by God, and more and more, hopefully, not by Christ's bride either. Amen. Let's sing in Christ alone, because he is where all of this comes to. Thank you. 